0: This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. 19th of April 2021 you're listening to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George well I've been contemplating a change from the variety uh format to becoming an exclusively political show but if I do that then we'll miss the opportunity to have a show like the one I've got for you today so uh We've given the whole show over to um, Newfoundland academic, author, satirist, and all round fun guy, Andrew Lohman, who's just completed uh, two book projects that are now going before publishers, and he has very kindly... Um, giving us a look in at this work before it comes out in print. All right, joining me on the line from St. John's, Newfoundland uh, is uh, Andrew Loman. He is a uh, novelist and professor of literature at Memorial University in St. John's. I know we seem to be uh, having a uh, guests from the far east on with greater frequency uh but um, we're appreciative that somebody out of our time zone and our world in a covid free city of st
1: john's
0: uh is here to uh, here to talk with us so first of all welcome to the program
1: thanks thank you so much for inviting me i'm really excited to be
0: here so um I understand there are a couple of book projects that you are now finishing off after a blistering two semesters of um, teaching online and staring into screens. Um, And the first, it just grabbed me because it's sort of like the book that, you know, you sort of aspire to do yourself. And once upon a time, as a younger person, I aspired to like write an autobiography or a novel, and I, I've given up on that. But, but you've concocted a book project that feels like it's almost within the measure of, of um, you know, a non-novelist. Uh, you've, you're doing a, an anthology of Facebook updates. Tell me, tell me about this project
1: well, it seems like something that a publisher could find a way to represent to people that would inspire them to pick it up. It also sounds like a kind of project that would inspire people to imagine me as a, um, <laughs> an irretrievable narcissist uh, it's it's uh, my, my status updates of I, I often do uh, do what everybody else does which is to overshare or I post links to uh stories that I find interesting but I've also uh I also use it as a little platform on which to uh write uh little experiments in style uh little sallies in what I hope uh, are wit uh, uh uh and just um you know things that are inspired by things I see in the news or uh passage I encounter in a uh uh, in an article that strikes my fancy or that or irritates me because of, of a grammatical eccentricity or a mixed metaphor and I just spin and elaborate and I've, I've created uh over the past uh seven or eight years or so uh quite an archive of these um uh, these little inventions uh they're all fairly short they feel like uh they feel like kind of contemporary postcard or kind of um shouts and murmur style article from the new yorker uh donald barthelm tom bald kate beaton are my muses on these kinds of pieces
0: so So, um now uh i you know my partner big fan of yours friend etc um i became acquainted with your um your satire of the Family chain letter year-end roundup. You know that New Year's letter where a report is uh, written about the activities of the family, and uh, I've I've read a couple of yours. They're they're somewhat fictionalized reports. One hopes uh, <laughs> is um, uh, are these being included in the anthology?
1: You know, those aren't, but there is an annual ritual that I do that is going into the anthology and that is a little, um, uh, birthday greeting to my son. And in the same way that the year-end status updates are, uh, are invented, uh, this one will be centered around, uh, how wonderful my son is, uh, but it will find a way to spin it. And the, 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 trick is to be creative each year and not retread it so uh so those are in there those are I, I asked him for permission uh before i included them in the manuscript but he was uh kind enough to say go for it so those are going to figure in there so um
0: this so about how many of these let's let's call them micro essays uh make it
1: into the volume uh, well, I've been doing those little micro essays every year uh, since 2013. That's when I did the first little mm-hmm. big reading, and I have uh, eight years of those now. Uh, so from the time he turned 18 to, uh, to this past January, uh, uh, I'm just looking, I have uh, it, the, the manuscript as a whole is about 48,000 words, somewhere in that vicinity. Uh, it's about 143 pages long in its current format. And I would guess there are about um, 60 or 70 different posts uh, that that entails. So we're looking, you know, that, I think that's about right.
0: Wow. So uh, that's that's an impressive list. Uh, it sounds like the, they're short enough that you might be able to read us some samples from the manuscript.
1: I have three that I thought might... Um, uh, might amuse. Well, two that I thought might amuse and one that would show you where, where I go when I'm being slightly less antic. Uh, 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 so yeah, I'll, I'll read the three, if I may. Yeah, let's dive in. Okay. Uh, this first one is one that I just wrote this morning. Uh, so it's hot off the press. It's up on the page right now and not getting enough love. So here, hopefully, I <laughs> will inspire my uh, your listeners to go to my page and like it, laugh, at it or love it. Uh, This is called The Sound of Dodecaphonic Music, Uh, and it begins this way. How Berea came to be there is another story. Suffice to say that despite her great success as Lulu in Berg's opera, she'd come to be perceived as a problem without a ready solution, and someone had found her a place as a governess of all things with an Austrian widower whose six children were named in ascending order by age, Gretel, Marta, Brigitte, Kurt, Louisa, Friedrich, and Liesel. I'm sorry, that's seven, but so many in short that to keep track of them, the captain used a stopwatch and a whistle and instructed Berea to do the same. They were all pleasant enough, the children. Only one was slightly eccentric, and that was Liesel, the oldest by far, who kept insisting that she was 16 going on 17, though she was patently in her 20s. The children were all inclined to music, and it was on this ground that Berea established good relations with them. They were enjoying a picnic one day in a sunny alpine meadow that they'd reached after a vigorous morning's hike. It was all a bit heiligeberg, Berea thought, but good for the children's lungs, and on this day she had a project in mind. She took her guitar out of its case, and as she tuned it, the children all leaned forward with great interest. Today we are going to learn all about music, she told them, and the first thing I have to teach you are the 12 tones of the chromatic scale. The most interesting music today, children, liberates the 12 tones, keeping anyone from assuming a place of privilege over the others. It is the music of freedom, not the music of totalitarianism. And she let her eyes rest on Liesl, who was in those days enjoying a flirtation with a postal delivery boy who kept a picture of the Fuhrer in his wallet. But Liesl, and in fact, all of the children, only looked befuddled and Berea said, oh fiddle, this is all too complicated, isn't it? And she began plucking out tone rows on her guitar in an astonishing feat of improvisation that would have made Schoenberg throw himself at her feet. The children leaned further forward, in danger indeed of falling into the schnitzel with noodles and gradually ascending the 12 tone scale, she began to sing. Doe, a deer, a female deer. Deck, it overlooks the lawn. A, the short just English word, Fo, they eat it in Saigon. Nick, the slightest little cut. Tone, an anagram of note. Ro, the tasty eggs of fish. Sear, with insights you can quote. E, a cockney saying he. Al, what intimates call berg. Lit, I drank too much that night. And so the next day, I drank tea, 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 dodecaphonic tonerocereality, dodecaphonic tonerocereality, dodecaphonic tonerocereality. And by the time she reached the retrograde inversion, the children mastered the rudiments and joined in and when the captain saw that the children had been recruited to the avant-garde, he only had eyes for Berea. Thus were the von Trapp family singers born, and their forbidding Uncle Theodore would have written a dense work of cultural analysis about them, but for the looming threat of Hitler, who liked the despotism of the key, and who considered the very idea of liberated pitch classes intolerable. Tartata, he called the very idea. His own tastes ran to the sentimental. His tastes ran to adorably Aryan children, making the hills come alive with the sound of music, preferably singing songs about alpine flowers with pure white petals, preferably in the key of sea. That kind of sugar-coated trash would make him twirl on an alpine slope until he was giddy.
0: Well, I had to mute myself there in order to not screw up your uh, your reading. Uh, this, is, um, this is some solid stuff. It's... Uh... Uh, I would be, I would feel so much better about the Sound of Music if um, uh, David Sedaris had uh, had directed it, and uh, <laughs> clearly he would have gone to you for the script. So um, uh, let's uh, let's move to the next one while I I fully take in what I've just heard.
1: <laughs> All right. So this one's from yesterday. Uh, this one is. Uh... It uh, begins, you have to imagine uh, a John Williams soundtrack accompanying this one. Uh, and This is what the setup is. Against a starry sky, this scroll. An orchestra emphasizes the purport. Star Wars, episode, episode four, Tatooine evening song. Luke just slaughtered them. That was his way. He'd get them in his sights and pull a trigger and there would be an explosion of blood and he'd laugh and say to whoever it was he was with, did you see that one? And laugh again, a crude, rough laugh. And while the womp rat gave a terminal shiver and groan, he'd take a swig of the beer that he'd smuggled out of his uncle's IC-1, the refrigerator droid. Nailed it, Luke would say, and then he'd belch with adolescent swagger. So Vern would look busy whenever he saw Luke coming, if he couldn't cross to the other side of the dune altogether. He hated what Luke combined, that resentment of the world for not rating him highly enough, and that shocking appetite for cruelty. Not that the appetite was entirely Luke's fault. Vern knew that. It's the way a lot of the boys were in that part of Tatooine. That's how they were raised, with the expectation that they'd heard anything and everything, especially if it were weak. Weakness offended them. It violated a code they were forced to master early. There were a lot of Lukes on Tatooine. Knowing that didn't make this particular Luke more tolerable. Vern, for one, liked the Wamprads. They were big, gentle burrowers with incisors of a startlingly radiant green. Startling because out in the desert, everything was yellow or blue, sand or sky, which made the green of the teeth, a strange marriage of the heavens and the earth. Vern saw the poetry in that, and he liked the way that they trilled early in the morning and again late in the evening when suns and moons were setting and rising, when the air cooled slightly and you felt your face relax a little, though you hadn't known you'd been tensing it. Matins and Vespers, the womp rat song. That's how Vern thought of it. That was the sound of Tatooine to him, not the crass music of the ca- uh, cantinas. Vern had built a blind near the womp rat colony. And on those days when he wasn't needed back on the sand farm, he'd leave his sand rake in the sand barn and head out to the dunes early in the morning before first sunrise. Even He'd spend the whole day peeping through a loophole watching the womp rats and whatever other dusty creatures of the dunes might pass by. Though Vern was well acquainted with the snakes and scorpions, none of them, for the record, particularly poisonous, the Womprats had captured his imagination, and he was never so happy as when one or another lifted its head above the burrow rim and then stole out into the sun and he could watch it from his covert. Vern was, in fact, the local authority on Womprats, though it's not the case that anyone tried to rival him. It might have been a lonely specialty if he were at all interested in the society of people. He knew what womp rat boars looked for in womp rat sows and vice versa. He knew how many womp rat piglets were born in a womp rat litter and how many on average survived to become womp rat shoats. He'd spent some time with sheet music in the blind, taking down the womp rat songs, which they trilled, he learned, in the key of A-flat major. Luke was the worst human being Vern knew. Oh my. All
0: right, let's 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 do our third. I think I'm starting to get the hang of this.
1: <laughs> All right, let me find my third. Uh, this is from December 14th, 2016, and it's prefaced with two quotations. The first is from the New York Review of Books, and the second from uh, Critical Theory, uh, uh, Facebook page, uh, now I think defunct. So here's the New York review of books quote, as species crash and vanish, the world loses diversity, something it's been doing for centuries. But the loss of abundance is even more startling. Nature is simply not as full as it once was. Second quote is, this relentless extinction, Ashley Dawson contends in a primer that combines vast scope with elegant precision, is the product of a global attack on the commons, the great trove of air, water, plants, and creatures, as well as collectively created cultural forms such as language that have been regarded traditionally as the inheritance of humanity as a whole. So this is number four. Like the Carolinas, where according to fable, the river's so teemed with crocodiles that you might walk from bank to bank across a bridge of flexing backs. So the language abounded once even to excess and logo daily then involved judicious selection, the weighing of precisely the right word among hundreds, if not thousands. We were judges, connoisseurs, all right, snobs, how far declined matters are today? You can imagine when I tell you there were no treasure houses of language then because the treasures were all around us, everywhere, treasure pastures, treasure seas. Shakespeare invented words, we all did. Three, then the hundreds of years of gathering up and enclosing the dictionary era, making the language hard as Beer said and inelastic, the police had come and the zookeepers and the hunters Melville couldn't picture a whale fishery exploited to the point of exhaustion. Who among us could picture an exhausted language? It all seemed for the best, putting the words in order, like putting hair in order with a comb to beautify the face. You know what followed. Two, but even just some words, even just a few can surprise you. Even just a few words can amaze and bewitch you. Even just a few can make you cry. What have we lost? So what then in that case have we lost? We have lost much. We have not lost all, and with some we can help ourselves. We can help ourselves to remember one the 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 the
0: the the I, uh, I'm not sure I can place the third uh, uh, work in the same category as the first two. The first two strike me as whimsical genre terrorism, uh, that uh, here we take a classic work, we change our optic, and we situate it in an adjacent but uncanny genre. Um, so other than the vaughn traps and uh the skywalkers uh who else has fallen victim to uh genre terrorism in this book uh
1: uh the 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 trick is, is to find uh, a genre or a work that everybody will recognize immediately and understands intimately so uh Jurassic park is one that i decided everybody would know uh, so I have a, a, a post called Classic uh, Park, uh, where instead of uh, dinosaurs that have been resurrected, it's uh, famous authors. Uh, so instead of a T-Rex, it's a Thomas Mann uh, who's making his way through <laughs> the park. Instead of velociraptors, they've resurrected Emily Dickinson. Uh, and Emily Dickinson turns out to be a terror who, uh, <laughs> who embodies death tracking people through the parks. Uh, I have a, uh, an Aliens parody uh, where uh, if, uh, from the, Jim, the the James Cameron uh, sequel where uh, where Ripley is watching the Marines descend into the bowels of the factory uh, but instead of uh, instead of xenomorphs it's uh, it's bagpipes uh, living dangerous bagpipes uh, I have um, uh, I have the Avengers <laughs> because everybody knows the Avengers uh, uh, I
0: don't even know which Avengers. For me, I'm uh, I'm equally familiar with Diana Rigg and something called the MCU that I don't have a grasp on because I there was too long a hiatus between having stepchildren and theaters haven't been opened. So um, I'm assuming
1: it's the more recent one. It is the more recent one because I think only at this point, pop culture antiquarians would be familiar with the Diana Rig Avengers. Uh, that
0: is deeply saddening and likely true.
1: I'm sorry to be the bearer of that bad news. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's the Avengers. Uh, and the, the title of the latest Avengers movie was Avengers Endgame. Uh, and Endgame happens to be uh, also the title of a Beckett play. Uh, So I envision and Thor as a Hammond clove from uh, from that play asking uh, Thor uh, being enjoined to fetch uh, Iron Man's iron trousers. Uh, And there's a little colloquy between the two of them. That's very Beckett influenced. Uh, (laughs) I do have another Beckett one uh, uh, and that's a Star Trek parody. Uh, Beckett's play gets mashed up with the original Star Trek cast. So it's, uh, it's, Kirk and McCoy and Spock all in urns alongside one another, uh, talking in this robotic, uh, uh, posthumous tenor about their relationship.
0: Oh, well, tremendous, tremendous.
1: So, so, so who, who, who publishes such things? Well, uh, I'm hoping I've got it under consideration at a local publisher in uh, St. John's. uh, I'm hoping that they're going to see it as a little gift to them. Uh, but I haven't yet, um, I've had it under consideration. We'll see, we'll see what they have to say. Uh, it's entirely possible that this is <laughs> completely uh, uh, unmarketable, we'll see.
0: Well, it strikes me as, I mean, it strikes me as a thing I would want to have. And I think it, um, it certainly is well-designed for our times when our attention is being sliced into smaller and smaller pieces. This seems like a way of engaging um, and putting ideas together with a certain efficiency that you're leaning on people's social memory in order to
1: um, avoid a bunch of exposition. Right. Yeah, exactly. My uh, my thought is uh, uh, that attention spans uh, being what they are able to be these days, these short little uh posts uh will resonate people can read one or two and then uh abandon the book for a day or two um and uh and my hope is that because these are based on you know they're, they're as you say they're genre terrorism they're mass culture terrorism they're taking these works that are thrust upon us and uh, infest our multiplexes uh and uh and in a uh uh, an antique spirit in a in a michelle deserto uh uh poaching spirit they transform them uh, and i hope and restore some creativity to these market driven things uh so yeah my hope is that people will uh will respond to these familiar texts and their defamiliarization in ways that make them and, and you know amusing it's provocative provocative
0: so um I, I find it interesting your your uh, your third essay talking about this decline in um, right that this this parallel decline in diversity and possibility of language and diversity and possibility, uh, possibility and abundance in in nature and um, certainly um, uh, and I I've had quite an ambivalent reaction to it because. Um, I'm watching um, as uh, having taught uh, university and college uh, in um, Vancouver and Toronto for, you know, I guess I started really, uh, you know, teaching 2005. I had a 15 year career uh, teaching, and on the one hand, there's a tremendous, there's such a desire um, to make English a um, hegemonic global trade language, right? You've got your your four great world diplomatic languages at this point, Mandarin, Arabic, English, and Spanish. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that um, uh, my experience was that uh, the language of instruction changed uh, during my 15 years. The language of instruction is now pidgin. um, One is encouraged not to enforce rules concerning verb tense, not to enforce rules concerning number, and um, also um, to not care what prepositions are. So some, depending upon someone's, if someone comes to English from a language with no preposition strategy, they might choose a single preposition and use it for all prepositions. They might randomize their prepositions. They might omit their prepositions. And for a while, I, I thought that this was, you know, uh, um, you know, that this was simply some sort of debasement. But I realized that um, um, just as in British Columbia, I learned a language that probably hundreds of thousands of British Columbians speak, but no one else does, um, BC high school French, right? It's not (laughs) comprehensible to French speakers, um, but you can communicate with other British Columbians who took those French courses in this strange little language. And Mm -hmm. I realized that in fact, People who write in Uttar Pradesh High School English can read um, Uttar Pradesh High School English at perfect fluency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I realized the degree to which something creative was going on was to realize that Mandarin speakers who write without write history essays without verb tense can sequence events without using tense, right? And then mm-hmm. I can't, I can read the same essay, and I can't extract a sequence, whereas someone with a Mandarin grammar of implied tense can. And mm-hmm. so one of the things I find we often miss when we look at capitalism is we really want to see capitalism as Fordism when in fact Fordism is a, a particular, you know, bizarre strain of anti-Semitic welfare capitalism that hasn't existed in a century. Um, that, that capitalism in fact is interested in the production of certain kinds of diversity. And that we're often so focused on sameness that we miss in, um, in the chaos, how much, n- how much new language is being made. Mm-hmm. And I, I wondered, I mean, you, you might have a different student body. You might, Memorial might be less dependent on roping, uh, roping people who don't have English fluency using commission salespeople, and then, um, and then denying them ESL instruction that the commission salesperson promised. But I, I wondered if you've had experiences along those lines.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, uh, not particularly at Memorial because, as you say, uh, the uh, it's, it's not for want of trying, but the resources uh, uh, by which to beguile students to Memorial are, I think, probably um, uh, uh, less, uh, fewer resources.
0: Able well, to- I think the problem is that the ropers don't live in your town, right? The ropers are people who live pretty high flying lifestyles because they're signing students for thirty three thousand dollars apiece. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So so when I taught at Simon Fraser uh, in um, uh, in two thousand five, I saw more of the kind of um, uh, challenges that you're describing. Uh, to instructors and to students. Uh, but it, to take your general point, the, 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 uh, the idea that language is actually proliferating, not vanishing in this way, I think is absolutely true. And I think uh, the notion that, uh, 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 that we should look to uh, surprising moments of linguistic fecundity and proliferation and expansion uh, is, uh, is well taken. Uh, this particular post uh, is really, uh, it's, it was um, that, that passage from critical theory that description of, uh, of Ashley Dawson's text just was, uh, it gave me a link between language and species extinction uh, that allowed me to find uh, a neat kind of uh, progression of linguistic impoverishment down the page uh, that could become a metaphor for uh, species extinction. Uh, so so it, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, posts where I wouldn't want to defend the proposition that the critic is making linking those two uh, uh, instances of, uh, of impoverishment. Uh, I simply lit on it as uh, an opportunity to find this kind of linguistic correlative to uh, the phenomenon that is yeah and
0: it's uh, it, it's well illustrated uh now um uh we do want to have time to talk about the novel as i did introduce you as a novelist so let's uh, let's head on in to uh, part two here You are listening to Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George on CFUR 88.7 FM. My name is Stuart Parker, and I'm currently interviewing Andrew Lohman, a Newfoundland-based literature professor and author. We're moving from talking about his short uh, book of micro essays, to a uh, longer novel project that uh, he's just completed. We now rejoin
1: the conversation. All right. So now uh, I should preface this by saying I'm a would-be novelist or I'm a novelist who's drafted a novel but it's not yet in print. Uh, So potentially a failed novelist where we're... (laughs) You're still a kind of novelist.
0: You've made the novel.
1: Right, (laughs) right. I have a novel. I'm a novelist. There's an adjective that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> may or may modify that eventually. Uh, this is—it's uh, a complicated book. Uh, uh, part of it is uh, um, is a, a kind of testimony project where I'm uh, taking my dad's experiences uh, when he was a child uh, on uh, on Java in the Dutch East Indies in the 1930s and 1940s uh, in the late colonial state. Uh, who then uh, was swept up into the concentration camp systems uh, when uh, the Japanese uh, Empire uh, uh, invaded uh, in World War II? He spent um, he spent uh, two and a half years in the camps uh, in the uh, in uh, these uh, military camps, uh, and then uh, stepped out very briefly uh, at the end uh, at the end of the war after the uh, Japanese surrender. Uh, and then uh, the Indonesian Nationalist Revolution erupted uh, and uh, uh, he was swept into a different system of camps and he was there until his 15th birthday. And in the course of those years, his, uh, his mother died of a brain tumor in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, a different kind of context on, uh, on Java. Uh, when he reunited with his father post-war, they were equally you know, they were both so scarred by their experiences that uh, that their relationship couldn't be salvaged, uh, and then my dad came to uh, to Canada. So it's it's partly about that, and what I'm interested in, as much as as it is interested in uh, representing his experiences, it's also trying to think through uh, uh, a late colonial state. Um, you know, it's it's trying to. Uh, 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 achieve a kind of exploration and sympathies for uh, for a person who is an uh, who is the child of agents of empire in a late colonial state, uh, who then gets swept into uh, into a concentration camp. Uh, uh, you know there are these kinds of um, expectations of sympathy for uh, to in, in with respect to each, and they clash. Uh, so uh, so the book is trying to to work its way through that, uh, but. The other part of the book uh, is uh, is about um, a kind of fictional projection of me uh, living a uh, life uh, in a settler colonial state of his own uh, and uh, and living a life of of, uh, intellectual or emotional stagnation. Uh, and uh, and he is wrestling. It's, he's it's wrestling with the question of how his father survived uh, this particularly horrible experience uh, and uh, uh, and escaped from it, only to have a child who's living a life who uh, with which he's desperately dissatisfied. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, uh, it's a shift of tone from from tragedy where it's dealing with this father and his experiences and it moves into a kind of absurd, uh, bleak kind of campus comedy. Uh, so that's the, the overall uh, construction of the book. Uh, what I'm gonna read to you is a section where uh, uh, the son, Anthony Leper, uh, who is given, <laughs> uh, he's given to fantasy, uh, he's had a vision uh, in a faculty council meeting, which he's been, you know, which he, 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 uh, he responds, he protects his, uh, himself through these meetings by going into dreams. Uh, and he's had a dream where he's met uh, the, uh, the uh, Russian Elijah uh, from Alexander Pushkin's visionary poem, The Prophet. Uh, and that prophet has met him in a New York cafe and has had an exchange with him in Anthony's imagination about uh, asking him what it is that he loves. He's saying, get out of your midlife crisis uh, or whatever it is by asking yourself what it is you love. And Anthony in his reverie has said, what I love is books. And, uh, and that's where the book, be- uh, where this passage begins. Uh, when the prophet asked, what's your six winged serpent? Anthony had given the fatuous answer the question deserved. But late that afternoon, as the sky darkened and he left the campus, tramping through muddy snow from the arts building to Elizabeth to Maple, his thoughts returned to that imaginary conversation. Embarrassing as it was to admit it, he couldn't improve much on books. Cut through the skin of his sophistication, and that's what the organs loved. It was mortifying to a self-proclaimed ironist to have to admit to something so sincere. But yes, yes, he did. Yes, he loved them. He loved them as objects, first of all, loved their texture in his hands, the cool satin of a paperback, the warm weave of a cloth cover, loved the feel of their spines resting in his palm, loved their smell of ink and bleached paper and dust. He loved the grime on old books, which made his fingertips dirty as he turned page after page and changed their texture and discolored the tap water when he washed his hands later and which made him fantasize occasionally about mysterious bibliophungi, fungi, and printer warts taking root in his skin. He loved the frictional hiss a book made as he pulled it from a shelf. He loved the worrisome crackle of the spine when the binding glue fractured. He loved how a turning page whispered, carrying him back always to his childhood, and those moments when he and his parents would be in a room reading just the three of them, the parents lounging in armchairs, him sprawling on his stomach on a couch or a carpet, and birdsong or a barking dog or rain on the roof, the only sound other than those turned pages to intrude on the stillness, the soft peace in which all conflict was suspended. He loved the sight of books on his shelves, a hodgepodge of sizes and colors and fonts reduced to order by their shared quadrangularity. He loved that their weight gradually warped the shelves, loved the books for it, resented the bookcases. He loved the jaunty tilt that a whole row of books would adopt when he pulled one out from among them. He loved the size of his library from decade to decade. He built whole walls of books and building them. He imagined he was building himself in the veil of soul making. Books are bricks. He loved judging them by their covers, he loved the covers of the highbrow books you find in independent bookstores, the weightiness of their contents announced up front by the paintings of old masters, or the chiaroscuro photographs retrieved from old archives, serious, important, pregnant images, usefully in the public domain. He loved the covers of the lowbrow books you find next to the drugstore candy aisle with their paintings in the muscled lover genre. Those endless sculpted men in period costumes, their hair flowing, their pectorals gleaming with oil, all promising an ecstasy of fucking, oh, he loved them. He loved the constipated covers of the middlebrow brow books in bookstores the size of airplane hangars or factory farms, each cover dominated by one or two muted colors and an evocative image, a treeless prairie say, with a pocked gravel road meandering to the horizon while cumulus clouds ponder above. Take this road, the cover said, under this grand sky and disappear over that horizon in the distance where there are fields of food for thought. He loved those scrupulously tasteful promises. He loved the dapperness of books with debossed covers. He had only a few. He loved the trashiness of covers embossed with gold foil. He had more than his share. He loved titles with their strict eight words at most, but one as best economy and the fondness for quotation that resulted in little feats of hypertextuality. He loved subtitles with their ludicrous prolixity. He loved blurbs, the glimpse they gave not into the book itself, but into the cultural stock of the author, her relation, puba or postulate to the book club. He loved measuring the blurbist's own clout by the unctuousness or condescension of the blurble burbling. He loved the wetty, wet and sticky circle jerkiness of the whole phenomenon. And wasn't it beautiful how every book could find at least one useful idiot to like it, and in public no less. He loved opening a book to see the leaves and after all what a strangely mixed creature a book was he thought, part plant and part vertebrate, leaves growing out of a spine. He loved those leaves and all their varieties of white, snow and dolomite and chalk and yarrow and eye and bone. He loved their different weights and textures. He loved how words in black ink appeared so smartly on the page, the most chaotic ideas submitting to the good governance of letters and lines and margins. From time to time, as everyone does, he'd look around his little home library and wonder about the provenance of all that paper What forests had been fed to what mills to make it? What effluence in the pulping process had uh, had entered which watersheds? In this mood, he might picture a forest landscape in Oregon, say, and a sudden squawking eruption of birds from the canopy, and then a lone tree quivering, shaking, crashing down out of sight, followed by more trees and more, the buzz of saw blades bursting into the tranquility of his home, which is to say that his book fetishism wasn't completely delirious. But he thought of this environmental toll the way Newfoundlanders thought of the wages of oil. In a decade when the industry's propagandists were losing their footing in the climate change debate, no one could contemplate Newfoundland's petroleum salvation without mixed feelings. On the one hand, relief that the province's post-cod wounds were at least partially scabbing over. On the other, a sense of queasy complicity in the unfolding ecological catastrophes of the petroleum era. And not just the distant prospect of a rising ocean, the notion that Water Street of, of Water Street someday underwater but more immediate specters haunted them too. The Ocean Ranger was the Newfoundland disaster of the epoch, the latter-day Beaumont Hamel around which the province consolidated its modern sense of self. And in the still more recent wake of Deepwater Horizon, the thought of those great artificial islands drilling into the floor of the Grand Banks could provoke tremors of anxiety even in the most resolute petroleophiliac hearts. Newfoundlanders live now in a spirit of nervous calculation, measuring the proximity of gain against the remoteness of pain. Remote now, maybe, or so unhoped, but on its way and getting nearer all the time, creeping to Hebron. Faust was the province's patron saint. In that same spirit, Anthony contemplated his books and the clear-cut landscapes and poisoned rivers that haunted them. He loved them. He needed them, he was prepared to sacrifice distant ecologies to them, though in the knowledge that in doing so he signed a contract with the devil on heavy paper, Snow White. And while he loved books for their materiality, faustically loved them, he loved them even more for their content. He loved the miracle of abstraction wherein four simple characters, L-O-V-E, could signify an emotion so tangled and bewildering and rich. He loved that with a simple transposition of the continents, the same four characters could signify an excremental little cousin of the rat. He loved language for its suppleness and muscularity and loved books for stretching and flexing it. He loved books that saw words as artifacts, each one a perplexing little engine of meaning that had been running for years or centuries or even millennia in which the course of time had changed subtly or substantially, but always and inexorably. He loved books that took stock of these histories, dwelt on them and made them a resource. But he also loved books with no patience for such urn-dusting antiquarianism and which instead exploited the immediate contemporary punch of words. He loved books that found new uses for old words and in doing so renewed their power. He loved a mint of a book, one that coined new words and entered them into circulation, gaining or losing currency in the linguistic economy. He liked short sentences. Writing a good one is tough. He admired an author who could do it with precision and pith, but he liked long sentences more, considerably more, because of their expansiveness, the sense they conferred of standing on a promontory and surveying a teeming landscape or else of being a figure in that landscape and negotiating a long trail with twists and turns that absorbed one's constant attention. He loved them for their subordinations and their subordinations within subordinations, frame narratives in miniature, little grammatical abysses into which a writer could fall potentially endlessly and which therefore needed careful authorial control, but which meanwhile expressed at the level of form the complexity and nuance of the world itself, a fidelity to the truth of things that made a compound complex sentence preferable in his view to a simple one. A short sentence might beguile with its simplicity, but risks travesty in what it represented. So Anthony thought. He loved discovering the architecture of a work, the structure for which words and sentences were the lumber and bricks. He loved a St. Paul's Cathedral of a book built to contain multitudes of the living and the dead and designed to elevate and humble them all at once, all in honor of some great human abstract. He loved a department store of a book, just as large as a cathedral and staking out the same urban real estate, but aiming at different ends, inviting the worship not of one grand, inalienable, imperishable fetish, but an endless succession of flimsy little ones you could take home with you. And to that end, creating not one great gallery for an assembled multitude, but hundreds of little alcoves for the display of thousands of tawdry idols. But these are books for congregants and consumers, the Moby Dick's and Sister Carrie's. He loved a far humbler book too, a middle-class house of a book, not a McMansion but something intimate, a few rooms large, big enough to accommodate a family of four and the occasional visitor. Secretly, he even loved the occasional outhouse of a book, a shameful little affair, ramshackle and utilitarian, tucked furtively at the back of a property behind something more respectable, well out of sight of passers-by, buzzing with flies and perched over a stinking pit, yet for all that offering satisfactions uniquely its own, relief, release and colloquies with nature. He loved books for transporting them to different landscapes and times where he could immerse himself in the lives of others. That magic was endlessly astonishing that allowed him to share, for instance, in the grief of a Massachusetts Puritan who sat down at a writing table late in the spring of 1669 and wrote a poem in memory of her newly dead granddaughter. Just three years and seven months old, wrote it, she says, with a troubled heart and a trembling hand, wrestling with her bereavement and seeking consolation in her faith. Just 18 lines of iambic pentameter, but for their duration, Anthony was Anne Bradstreet. At least for that brief spell, he could imagine he was she, then his critical faculties would return and the metaphor would collapse. In sum, he loved books for all the reasons that everyone who loves books loves books. And all of which is to say that Anthony could dignify an otherwise ignoble, self-serving project and could do so with something like a straight face by appealing to the book. In its name, not his own, he felt free to infiltrate Liza's mouth and take his place as her tongue. The Simathoa exigua that slipped through the gills and bit for the sake of mere survival was a disgusting parasite. The Simothoa exigua that slipped through the gills and bit for the sake of art was an angel on the step. By the time he reached this conclusion, he'd come home and had climbed the steps and was crossing the threshold.
0: Wow. That is uh, that is a pile of ideas, but I was <laughs> very struck by uh, the first part in which books were not piles of ideas, but piles of materials. Uh, and I, I think that... that um, I think that in some ways, I mean, I don't really like Occident-Orient binaries, particularly I don't find them that helpful, but I think the decision to so strongly credit the printing press with the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment um, produces a lot of effacement of why we like books as physical artifacts in our society that we're just supposed to like what's on the inside and not the outside. But you know, in religions other than sort of the Christianity of the West, um, people often see holy texts as the physical object, right? This is a problem in Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity. You can't put an Ethiopian Bible in a museum because it needs to be in church. If it's survived 800 years, because it is um, it is worthy and holy as a physical object rather than merely on the basis of its contents and you know there are these buddhist traditions of monks carrying books in little locked metal boxes so that they don't open them so that they worship the or are devoted to the existence of the book whose contents they may or may not be ready for and uh so i was I was curious about your um, uh, your thinking of, about the physical technology. When suppose you know this this gets published, it seems like a very likely event. Um, will the Kindle edition be the same as the physical edition? Will um, Is it, um, are we really engaging with books uh, when they're ephemeral and made out of light and uh, might vanish from your hand at any moment?
1: Yeah, it's interesting to envision a situation where someone is reading a hymn to the materiality of the book, like the one I just read, Mm -hmm. uh, Monarchy. uh uh and one wonders if they'll find it uh a deeply nostalgic moment or if they'll feel it is a hopelessly diluted uh uh senescence. Or uh, perhaps
0: an explanation of why they're not having as good a time reading your book as they thought they would.
1: Right. <laughs> uh,
0: that perhaps <laughs> if they were reading it as a proper book, they would be enjoying it more.
1: I'll put it to them. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, first of all, I I uh uh the, the, as a literary critic, uh, the styles of reading that I was first trained in uh, were utterly indifferent to material contexts in general. Uh, not just the book that you were holding in your hand, uh, but uh, the culture which made the book. Uh, that stuff was to be dispensed with as soon as possible. Uh, and it was one of the uh joys of grad school where uh where a more materialist kind of criticism started to focus on uh you know the the kinds of cultural contexts in which these emerged and the complicated relationships with those cultures. The uh,
0: development of the subdiscipline of book history.
1: And right, yeah. And there is that, you know, that further dimension. It, it's something um uh I uh, have come to rather late in my intellectual development. You know, it's the the book history, the actual Mm -hmm. image of the book, or the the reality of the book, uh, uh, is something that has never been particularly uh, striking to me. Uh, uh, But I was reading um, uh, a book, uh, a comic book by a writer called Ben Catcher. uh, first comic book artist to win a MacArthur Genius Grant, and he has these—he um, uh, uh, has a little vignette at the beginning and the end of this book, which describes where the paper comes from in his book, uh, and uh, and uh, it created this mob, you know, this this <laughs> uh, uh, ambivalent view of uh, the kinds of. Um, Costs, very much like what I'm mapping out here, actually. As I'm saying it, I'm going, oh, I'm just ripping off Ben Catcher. Oh, that's bad. Uh, I shouldn't be copying to this. Uh, but that made me start thinking much more about, uh, about uh, the, the, the book as object. Um, uh, and I suppose I'm simplifying the, that kind of genesis, too, because my students and I have been having this discussion for years uh, with the digitization of all these libraries, uh, the kinds of collections uh, instructors have at their fingertips that they can assign, uh, has increased enormously. So, uh, you know, I'm no longer reliant on a couple of publishers and a couple of scholars making decisions about what's going to go into a, uh, a literary archive. Right. Uh, and it, I was course, all...
0: it also, I mean, it also both democratizes and potentially fragments cultural processes of canonization, which, Absolutely. um, is something that I'm afraid we're going to have to get to next time. We have chewed okay. up uh, an hour quite effectively. Just wanted to make uh, wanted to express my appreciation for the readings. Um, indicate the certainty that you'll have to come back so we can continue this conversation, and to make and to ask if you've encountered one very small strange thing that I think is speaks to both of your projects. Do you ever encounter the book name called Twitching and Shattered by Frank Key?
1: I have not. Uh,
0: My friend Alana found it in a remainder bin at a bookstore in Vancouver for $3.38 in 1996. It's been incredibly difficult to get additional copies. Anyway, it's a very strange fragmented humor book, but there's this thing in it that I began to think of as I thought about, where would your projects intersect? And Frank, Key only made four of these, but you might wanna consider making one. Forthcoming book jackets, where you just write, where you just produce the book jacket and then move on. It has wonderful, bi- he has wonderful biographical information about authors. Like in 1951, he threw a crate into the sea. Uh, book reviews from obscure book reviewers uh, offering evaluations, such as a small zinc pad. Uh, so, anyway, I I hope we can we can do this again and, and perhaps uh, craft some book jackets.
1: I would love that. I've I've done that sort of thing before, and I have it in me to write a parody biography of Jordan Peterson because he's already. You know, Nine-tenths of the way there, it just needs a little tweaking to uh, point out the absurdity of it.
0: Um, have that... you uh, have you looked at the Institute of Gremlins 2 Studies uh, study of Jordan Peterson? <laughs> no oh, them, yes, you've got to look that up straight away. The Institute of Gremlins 2 Studies is, is such a solid point of departure. Well, so well. Uh, anyway, <laughs> thank you again.
1: More soon. Thank you. That was really fun. Thank you. Pile Thanks of fun. Talk to you soon.
0: This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co sponsored by Los Altos Institute. LOSALTOS.ca.
2: Just kidding White and white fortress carries Day take me back to fortress carries take me back to fortress, Day. Back to fortress Day I turn on the news on my old TV. Looking this one in the goddamn country, look a little bit older now, but I can recognize them by the way they wheel power. I just pop a bit and size, they're there, but the spite of God go I, 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 I. Despair, spared The fortress Take me back